Good morning. I'm, I miss all of you. Uh, the church was intended and designed by God to do life together and to build one another up, and that's pretty hard to do when our, our primary uh, access to each other is via the Zoom app or Skype or whatever. <laughs> but uh, we all pray that we'll be able to get back to uh, being with one another very soon. I'm thankful to you guys for your prayers for me and my sweet wife, Debbie. We're getting uh, to the last couple of days of our self-quarantine, and we feel fine. And we do thank you for your prayers. We'd ask for your continued prayers for our neighbor and friend. He has now been on a ventilator uh, for the last seven days. He's in stable condition. Uh, but as you know, if you've been following what's been said about this virus, those who, the people who get to that point and have pneumonia and acute respiratory distress take uh, a good while to, to come through it and to, to get better. So please keep praying for him and for his family. And let's, uh, let's pray now before we look into God's word. Dear Father, uh, the matters that we are considering go right to the heart of our hope, our peace, and our purpose as your beloved children. We ask that you would reveal your heart to us as we go to your word and your spirit works through your word to, to, uh, to show us things we very, very much need to understand and to know. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that, that you are indeed sovereign over all that you have made. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to first assure you that we have not abandoned our study of the book of Jeremiah that was underway before this current uh, crisis arose. But the elders unanimously agree that we, we need to spend a little more time at addressing the present situation from a biblical perspective before we go back to that, that study that was already going on. Uh, and that's not to say at all that Jeremiah, that the book of Jeremiah doesn't address some of these things that we're dealing with now. It does, but, but we want to just address them a little more uh, from a broader view of Scripture. Earlier this week, uh, Bob Deffenbaugh sent me a, a link to a 15-minute message from John Piper. Uh, it was part of his Ask Pastor John forum. And that message was Piper's response to a question from a pastor in Singapore who asked how Christians need to understand and respond to the global COVID-19 pandemic in a manner that is consistent with what God has declared in his word. It's a great question. It's kind of on everybody's minds, uh, all, all Christians' minds. And uh, Brother Piper provided an excellent answer to the question that was very biblical. That message prompted me uh, to the series that we're about to do. And, and that this series of four messages 
will be loosely based on uh, on the main points of Piper's brief message. My title for this four-message series is Making Sense of a Pandemic. God has not been silent. And the first message of the four is, Does God Control Only the Good Stuff? Many of us vividly remember Sunday, December 26, 2004, when the third largest earthquake ever recorded rocked the floor of the Indian Ocean near the Indonesian island of Sumatra. That massive earthquake released an explosive force 23,000 times greater than the atomic bomb detonated over Hiroshima in August of 1945. The upheaval in the ocean floor sent tsunamis rushing toward coastlines of many nations. Those tsunamis constituted one of the most lethal disasters in modern history, killing more than 230,000 people. The monstrous waves that struck Indonesia, India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and other coastlines leveled entire communities. Banda Aceh, a provincial capital in northwestern Indonesia, was wiped off the map by a wave the height of a 10-story building. 170,000 people were killed in that one city of Banda Aceh, most of them in just minutes. Among that multitude that was killed that Sunday morning, one day after Christmas, were Christians, some of whom were getting ready to go to church and others who were already gathered in their churches to worship. The loss of life that day was staggering, but a natural disaster has never taken as many lives as the worst pandemics. Almost a century ago, in the final months of World War I, a highly infectious virus that became called the Spanish flu spread across the globe, eventually infecting half a billion people at a time when the, the entire population of the world was only 1.8 billion. Like the tsunamis in 2004, that virus was no respecter of persons or beliefs. The first wave of that infamous flu spread like wildfire through the armies of America, England, France, Spain, and Italy, and then spread out from those military organizations into the general population of those nations and many others. But that first wave of the Spanish flu progressed a lot like a typical flu that we see these days. You might get that bug and then have it for a few days and get over it. That was kind of the typical progression in the spring of 1918. In the summer of 1918, the virus just kind of stopped. It faded away, and everyone hoped they had seen the last of it. But in that next fall and winter, it came back with an ugly vengeance in a mutated form that produced many terrible responses 
in the people that it infected, especially in older people. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that was seen in that uh, Spanish flu that we are now seeing again with COVID-19 is a, a, an exaggerated immunological response called a cytokine storm syndrome. Uh, essentially, the body's effort to fight off the virus makes the inflammation and fluid retention in the lungs even worse. Um, the result in, this, in the case of the Spanish flu was a mortality rate uh, much higher, much higher than common flus. In the month of October 1919, just in that one month, the, the Spanish flu killed 195,000 Americans. Worldwide estimates range from 50 to 100 million that were killed by the virus. That's roughly 3 to 5% of the world population at that time. Now, make sure you hear what I'm saying. That virus didn't merely kill 3 to 5% of those infected. It killed 3 to 5% of humanity. Now, COVID-19 has many similarities to the Spanish flu. But the situation today is not, it is not like it was in 1918. We have the benefit today of another hundred years of medical advances. And we're not in the middle of a world war that forced a bunch of men to share very closed quarters in many places of the world while the disease was spreading. And of course, our communication systems are immeasurably better than anything that existed back then. This is surely not the same scenario as 1918, but, but make no mistake. Those who declare that this is just another flu simply don't know the facts. And the facts are readily available. Right now, the world is faced with a crisis that has not been witnessed by anyone younger than 100 years old. The ultimate impact of COVID-19 on individuals, families, communities, businesses, and entire economies is yet to be seen. But as we can all attest at this point, that impact has already been profound. So how do we as Christians make sense of COVID-19? And how do we rightly represent God as we talk with people and serve people in the midst of this crisis? Well, above all, we must be saying to the world and to one another what God has said. And in order to do that, we have to know what God has said. And that's the purpose of these next few messages. The question we want to consider today from a biblical perspective is, does God control only the good stuff? Some people would, would have it that way. They would say that that's, that's the way things work. That God doesn't cause bad things to happen on earth. We need to address that question head on. A God who is powerless to prevent or to stop calamities on earth isn't sovereign. 
He's impotent. And he's certainly not worthy of any man's fear or faith or worship. But what about a God who absolutely could put a stop to calamities like this virus, but chooses not to? And more to the real point, what about a God who deliberately causes calamities like COVID-19? What do we conclude about that God? Let's start with what the God of the Bible actually says he controls and causes. The Bible declares over and over that God is sovereign over all of creation and that sovereignty is absolute. Nothing surprises him. Nothing escapes him. Nothing thwarts his will. It took some seriously hard knocks for Job to learn just how powerful that reality is. But that's exactly what Job affirmed about God in his response to God in the last chapter of the book of Job. Job said, I know, Lord, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak, and I will ask you, Lord, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. God had brought Job to conclude what he had long heard about God and had essentially believed to be true. But God caused him to to believe that fact, that truth about God's own sovereignty more, more fully than he had ever believed it before. And what brought him to that, that, that very powerful conviction was that God brought him through disaster. And God spoke to him in the midst of that disaster. In the first two chapters of the book, God granted permission to Satan to put Job's faith in in God to the test through a series of exceedingly painful afflictions. The first round of those afflictions took the lives of all of Job's children and wiped out his livestock, which was, that was his livelihood. The second round of afflictions covered Job with blistering boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head and left him in that condition for a long time. In chapter 2, Job's wife gave him her take on all of this, <laughs> and she gets the award for the very very worst wifely counsel ever recorded. <laughs> she said to Job, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then God adds, In all this Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, when Job said that, he was was saying what was right. 
Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? Now, while Satan was the instrument through whom all of that terrible affliction came upon Job, Job rightly understood and declared that God was the one in control of it. And that's the consistent testimony of the whole Bible. The words translated good and adversity in Job 2 verse 10 show up all over the Old Testament. The word rendered good is the word the Hebrew word tov. It means things that bless and build up and, and bring pleasantness into the lives of people. Things like abundant spring rains and fruitful crops and lots of children and protection from enemies and relationship with God. The word translated adversity is the Hebrew word ra or ra'ah. It means bad in pretty much all of the connotations of that word. When it's applied to the bad that men do, it typically refers to moral evil. In other words, sin. Things like injustice and false witness and sexual sins and murder and theft and slander. And you get the picture. When it's used of the bad things that God causes, it never refers to moral evil. It refers to things that come from the hand of God that cause pain, unpleasantness, harm to men. It refers to the countless outworkings of the curse of death and decay, the curse that God caused in his creation. Things like disaster, calamity, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, famines, and pandemics. The very worst bad that God does is to cut men off from relationship with, him, with himself. Now, I'm, I'm well aware that many people would say that some or all of those things that I just listed are moral evils, no matter who does them. And so they conclude that the God of the Bible is an evil God, if he even exists. And they conclude that any person who worships him is therefore evil as well. We'll get to that question, but first I want to make sure that we're very, very clear about God's answer to the question, does God control only the good stuff? Jeremiah chapter 10 is a divine satire on the foolishness of worshiping gods that are made by human hands. In that powerful chapter, God calls idolatry a discipline of delusion because it's actually hard work convincing yourself to worship something that you made instead of worshiping the one who made you and everything else. But verse 5 of Jeremiah 10 is where this chapter gets very relevant to what we're dealing with right now. In that verse, God says of idols that are made by men, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, 
for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. They can do neither harm nor good. And so they're not worthy of your fear. And they're not worthy of your worship. And they're not worthy of anything. The words harm and good that are used there are the same Hebrew words we saw in Job chapter 2. I mean chapter 42. Ra and Tob. Bad and good. Jeremiah goes on to say in that passage, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes. And the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth and he makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. For the maker of all is he and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Now, according to that passage, who causes earthquakes? God does. Who causes floods and hurricanes and tornadoes? God does. The same God who causes life-giving rains and bountiful harvests and protection from enemies and length of days and every other gift that the Bible calls blessing. The God who controls all blessing also controls all curse. The God who controls all good also controls all calamity. Amos chapter 3, the prophet writes, hear this word which Yahweh has spoken against you, O sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So this is a passage about corrective judgment from God upon his own people. In verse 6, Amos goes on, he says, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not Yahweh done it? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not Yahweh done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos is saying, first, that 
all calamity comes from the hand of God. And secondly, that God has told us that. That God sent his prophets and he told, he told his people through his prophets that it was God who was causing these things to happen to them. It was not happenstance. It was not accident. It was not something that nature did. These were things that God did. God is saying as, for, as forcefully as words allow that he controls all calamity just as surely as he controls all blessing. And in that passage, the calamities he's talking about are corrective judgments against his own people. In fact, most of the judgments in the Bible are directed to the covenant, against the covenant people of God. Now, does that mean that every person who is affected by a disaster is being judged by God to punish or correct some specific sin? No, it does not. In John chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples came upon, came upon a man who had been born blind, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered them, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, Jesus says quite clearly that not every manifestation of the curse is a judgment from God against a particular sin. The curse, of course, is a judgment against the sin of mankind, but not every judgment is for a specific sin. What we shouldn't miss, though, is who caused that man's blindness and why. The answer from the passage is that God did. And he did so in order that his works might be displayed in that man. Now, let that soak in for just a moment. <laughs> At birth, God placed upon that man an outworking of the curse that made his life a lot harder than what most people ever have to deal with in their mortal lives. And God did that so that his works might be displayed in that man. And the outcome for that man was eternal life. He also healed the man's, Jesus also healed the man's blindness, but that wasn't the end point. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to turn that man's heart to Christ in order that he would be saved. Beloved, blindness and flu and every other affliction that men suffer in this life that isn't caused by the sin of another person is caused by the curse. And the curse was caused by God. Sin is the reason for the curse and God is the cause of the curse. Pandemics happen because human beings have violated the character and holiness of God. We who know the Word of God need to get that straight. And right now is when that needs to happen, beloved. When we Christians, in the midst of a phenomenon like COVID-19, throw up our hands and say, I don't know why terrible things like this happen. 
I don't understand why a loving God would allow so many people to be harmed so badly. We are denying what God has clearly declared. We know why things, such things happen. Mankind and the domain that God assigned to mankind are under the curse because Adam sinned against God. And because we were all born into the sin of Adam and we have all sinned like Adam. God is holy and we're not. And that's why God placed the curse on his creation and on mankind. And what we deserve, all of us, is a whole lot worse than anything that we will suffer in this mortal life up to and including the death of our physical bodies. What we deserve, every last one of us, is eternal spiritual death. Separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power forever in a place of eternal misery. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And He intends to use us who are indwelled by Him as His instruments to accomplish that work. When we respond to an event like this one and we say nothing about sin or righteousness or judgment, we're being incredibly lousy representatives of God. But that's not all that God has commissioned us to say in a crisis like this. Far from it, because that's not all that God has said about his purposes for the disasters and calamities that he executes on earth. See, the real question here, the question that the world never asks and that far too many Christians never get around to asking is this. Why does God even bother with temporary earthly calamities at all? Why doesn't he just get on with it and put us where we all belong? And the marvelous answer is that he is a gracious and merciful God who loves to redeem and restore and build and plant and bless. The temporary curse that God has imposed on man and creation comes with an assignment, which if embraced and done, will deliver the soul of everyone who keeps that assignment from the permanent outworking of the curse. The temporary expression of the curse is intended to turn men away from that which has cursed them entirely and eternally and to turn their hearts to God that they might be saved and blessed. The temporary curse is gracious and when we finally start agreeing with God about that, we'll finally begin to understand why so much of life, this side of glory, is exactly as it is. The gracious call that is built into every effect of the curse on earth 
is turn your heart to God where you'll find blessing beyond measure. Not just temporary blessing, not even fundamentally temporary blessing, but eternal, untouchable, unassailable blessing that starts right here and right now because it is the blessing of relationship and fellowship with the one true God who made you for himself. The God who sent his own beloved son to die in the place of sinners like you and me, who paid once and for all the sin debt of sinners like you and me, and who covers us with his own righteousness so that we are made worthy to dwell with him forever. And how do those things come to happen to us? They happen when we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone to save us, to restore us to our Creator, to cover us with His righteousness, and to bring us into His kingdom. For us who already trust in Jesus, every effect of the curse that we experience on earth still comes with that same gracious assignment. Turn your heart to God where you will find blessing beyond measure. If we simply listen to God and take him at his word, we will never again stumble around in confusion or in misplaced fear when we come up against a pandemic or a tumor or a flood or a disabling car accident or anything else that the curse brings upon us. We will never again be at a loss to know what to say to the people around us when they are stumbling around in confusion and misplaced fear. We'll know. We'll know that every effect of the curse until we draw our last breath is a gracious reminder from our Creator that He is our only good. We'll know that even a pandemic is a gracious reminder that real life is not about physical well-being during the short vapor of a life that we have here. But real life is union with Jesus Christ that brings us into everlasting relationship with our God and with his people. That's what, what he made us for. If we listen to God, we'll know that it's gracious when he breaks us of our affection and obsession with things that do not and cannot bless and turns our heart instead back to the one from whom every good thing and every perfect gift comes down out of heaven. The Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In case I haven't been clear clear enough, let me be as crystal clear as I can at this point. When God shatters our trust in the work of our own hands, when he shows us that our retirement plans do not have the power to guarantee us financial security or financial independence, when he shows us that the career that we carved out or the business that we built through decades of hard work cannot guarantee us 
an income even for another day. When he shows us that the health that we have achieved through diligent diet and exercise over many years can vanish in an instant. When he shows us that all of our efforts to provide for ourselves and protect ourselves and our loved ones can crumble into dust. He doesn't do so because he's uncaring or unkind. He does so because he is wonderfully and marvelously loving. He does so to cure us of misplaced fear and misplaced trust and to turn our hearts back to himself where real blessing and real life are found. For us who belong to Christ, every disaster, every calamity, every illness, every hurt that comes to us from the hand of God is a gracious shot across our bow to turn our hearts away from things that cannot bless back to Him and Him alone where we will always find all that is true life and true blessing. And we need quite a few of those shots across the bow because we forget. We lose sight of that which is life indeed. And He reminds us because He's faithful because he loves us, because he's not ever going to leave us to find satisfaction in things that can't satisfy and to pretend that we find life in things that can't, can't provide life to us. How do we, who are called to be ambassadors and spokesmen for God, explain to people who don't know God why COVID-19 is happening? Well, you can sum it up in five words. God made us for himself. When any person comes to understand how those words explain God's purpose in something like COVID-19, that person will know the gracious heart of God in a way that will clarify everything that he or she experiences for the rest of of their lives. Beloved, I've said this before and I'll say it again. We have been handed an extraordinary opportunity right now. And God intends for us to take advantage of it. We're his spokesmen on earth. And we have something to tell the people around us that they desperately need to hear. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let's declare that to the people around us. Life is a relationship with the living God. Life is not an easy existence here and now. Life is relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, sometimes I'm too wordy. Sometimes I'm, I'm just, uh, I have trouble expressing what's on my heart. But I pray 
with all my heart, Lord, that you would get your point across through the passages that we've looked at and those that, are, that, that the hearers of this message already know. Lord, you've spoken. You haven't left us to guess. You tell us over and over that you are sovereign over all that happens on this earth. And Lord, the things that you do, you do because you are a good and holy and righteous and just and faithful God. And you are a gracious God. Speak your truth through us, Father. Love the people around us through us. And keep our eyes fixed on the one who is life indeed. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.